What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, man? Chilling, man. As per usual. How about yourself? I'm trying to uh, moderate the sound of my voice. What do you mean, guys? moderate? <laughs> I'm trying to moderate. I'm having trouble moderating the sound of my voice. <laughs> um, because my son is sleeping in the adjacent room, and I don't want to wake him up because it's late. Fair enough. 9.52, and he's been having trouble sleeping lately. Hmm. Well, we'll try and keep it quiet and quick. All right, guys, we're going to do this whole show whispering because we can't wake the baby. (laughs) We can't wake the baby. You know what? I don't even know what ASMR means. What does that stand for? I've heard that I don't know what it stands for, for, but like I know it's just like videos where it's just like you're listening to satisfying or, you know, interesting sounds. Let's let's Google it right now. ASMR. What What does that mean? ASMR is a subjective experience of low-grade euphoria characterized by a combination of positive feelings and a distinct static-like tingling sensation in the skin. It is most commonly triggered by specific auditory or visual stimuli and less commonly by intentional attention control. Yeah, so I I feel pretty confident that most regular listeners of of, uh, bro history would consider this ASMR, what do you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I don't think today's topic is going to be a- ASMR. <laughs> Probably not. All right. Well, let's get started because it is late, and I don't want to risk. I don't want to risk uh, waking up the baby. So um, this is. I hate doing part two because when you say it's part two, it. People are like, oh, uh, well, I gotta watch, like, listen to part one. I can't listen to it. But I guess, in all honesty, you should listen to the first part. So last episode, which we did on the ethnic cleansing of Germans out of Eastern Europe, because this is very much a continuation, and and ultimately it's a continuation of the story of the Danube Swabians that we didn't complete. So we got about halfway through our script, and we we're like, up, oh, we have like another hour and a half worth of content, so we better just zip it up. But um, just to, well, let me let me talk to you about this first because we were we were actually trying to include this in the episode, but we really just couldn't find this article. And the article that I'm talking about was an article that was written by an Israeli general. And basically, the premise of the article was. Yeah, um, you know, I was involved in the ethnic cleansing of Arabs. Um, you know, my my unit personally <laughs> expelled Arabs out of their out of their towns. But and you know, he he goes on to say about seven hundred thousand Arabs were were expelled out of um, the towns and uh, villages that they were living in into into um, you know the West Bank and Jordan and Gaza and you know various adjacent countries and at the end he's like yeah we we absolutely did do it um i don't feel great about it but you have to look at the context of the time and the reason why it wasn't such a big deal during this time in 1947 and 1948 there was already a huge precedent set for mass forced migrations during world war ii so this was just child's play compared to what happened to the Germans 
And that was, and I've been trying to find this article and I can't find it, but I think it's relevant. Um, maybe someday I will find it. And if I do, I'm going to read the whole thing out in one episode because it is really <laughs> fascinating. Well, I mean, but, I, I know I, I was doing some research on this too to help find it because I've, I've read similar accounts and I think it has a lot to do with like, um, you know, some of the, some of the stated plans that are, that are pretty well known, like Plan Dalit or Dalit. I don't know how it's pronounced. D-A-L-E-T. Which was one of the, um, you know, Israeli uh, armies. Oh, well, I guess they weren't Israel yet. One of the, uh, those Israeli militias' plans of <clears throat> basically encircling a town um, and then going in and, and doing inspections, and if there was any armed resistance whatsoever, uh, that they would just literally burn everything down or and or force everyone out. Um, but you know, when you think about it from that perspective, you know, if, if you think about you're living in your town and you know, Henry, you're, you're up in the north. Imagine if, like, some Canadian group decides to come down and surround your house and be like, all right, you're blocked. You can't get anything in or out. Uh, and also, I'm going to come inside and take a look around. And if you do anything about it, we're just going to we're gonna shoot you and we're going to burn the house down and make your, you know, wife and, and son march to anywhere else. I mean, you know, it's a little fucked up, but that was the plan. And, and it's pretty well stated. Um, I don't think... Many people deny that that was the plan. Of course, I think the the you know, folks that are more on the Israeli side for this uh, particular argument were would be closer to the lines of like, hey, you know, the the Palestinian groups were telling their people to leave uh, for their safety, and you know, we were just we just happened to roll by, right? Uh, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of the two. But um, like like you said, Henry, this this wasn't new or unique at all. You know, it's still terrible no matter where it was happening uh, and no matter to whom it was happening. I mean, the Germans were, you know, uh, perpetrators of, uh, of of the Holocaust. And, and you know, you, you might think to yourself, why do we care if 12 to 15 million ethnic Germans were expelled from surrounding countries uh, after World War II? They were the bad guys. Well, I mean, it's it's still terrible, right? It's still ethnic cleansing. It's still... You know, a lot of innocent people that had nothing to do with anything bad are now gone from their homes, dead or in camps. It's just, it's never okay, <laughs> I guess is what, what we're trying to point out in that particular article that you were referencing from the that one general. It, you know, it's just not okay. And even he acknowledges that it's not okay, but in the context of the day, it's it was small it was a normal rise yeah it was it was normal so 700,000 Arabs being pushed out of uh, a number of you know settlements or towns or villages or farms or estates in in Palestine didn't really hold a candlestick to to what was happening in Europe and it wasn't just Germans uh there was there was millions of other ethnic groups that were that were um forcibly migrated and even before World War II this was happening so just to give a bit of a recap of our last episode. So we, we talked about the forced population transfer of between 12 to 15 million ethnic Germans after World War II. And um, the largest of these transfers, or the vast majority of these transfers, were in Eastern Europe. You have uh, 5 to 7 million that were expelled out of uh former Eastern territories of Germany that were acquired by Poland in the, in the Soviet Union. You have two to three million that were expelled out of Czechoslovakia, 700,000 that were, that were displaced out of Romania, 
400,000 Volga Germans, who are the Russians, uh, Russian Germans, um, 150,000 Baltic Germans, roughly 100,000 hung- Hungarian Germans, and then you have uh, 200,000 expelled from Yugoslavia, which will be the subject of our well, continued subject of our conversation. And you might ask, why are you concentrating on like a lower number? 200,000 is not even close to the amount that were expelled out of out of Poland. Well, the reason why we're focusing on this is just because the way that they were expelled is probably the most brutal out of any out of any expulsion uh, post World War II or during World War II. And um, you may ask yourself, what was there, why were there so many Germans in the first place to be expelled? I mean, aren't Germans supposed to be living in Germany? Well, Germans were everywhere across Europe. And in, in particular, they were in the Baltics, they were in Poland, they were in, in Czechland, Slovakia, Transylvania, Ukraine, they were in Russia. Um, I mean, there's even Germans in Latin America, there's Germans in the United States. You know, Germans had have a long history of migrating to, to do uh, not only different parts of Europe, but across the world. And um, be, be, before the 20th century, these German-speaking communities had their strong local identities and they were connected to the region that they lived in. However, post-World War I and the collapse of the Habsburg Empire and the German Empire and the Russian Empire, these new nationalist states uh, emerge that prioritize ethnic purity and they take the place of these empires that were, that were largely uh, you know, multicultural empires which left the Germans who were living in these new states as these vulnerable minorities. The Danube Swabians, these were the, essentially they were the German-speaking ethnic group in southeastern Europe. And the Habsburg Empire, they would subsidize German settlements in former Ottoman lands as the Ottomans would, you know, as they left their, their influence uh, and their pull in Europe uh, gradually waned. So after World War I, you had the fall of the Habsburg Empire, and then you had the creation of Yugoslavia. And the Danube Swabians became known as the Yugoslav Germans. And these Yugoslav Germans, who had previously been a privileged privilege class, they lose their privileged status in the German-Austrian Empire. And they were victims to things like redistribution reforms, uh, land redistribution reforms. Um, You know, they didn't have enough pull in the new Yugoslav government. The dominant ethnic group became the the Serbs. And um, this leads to the, excuse me, I had a burp. This leads to Yugoslav Germans adopting their own pan-Germanic nationalism. And these new nationalist German parties that emerge in Yugoslavia, such as the Kulturbund, um, they're, they're sponsored by the Third Reich. The Third Reich has their own um, kind of like German abroad you know, bureau that basically subsidize like German national groups in other countries. So during World War II, when Germany invades Yugoslavia, 
Uh, Germany invades Yugoslavia in 1941 in April, um, about two months prior to Operation Barbosa, Barbarossa. Um, they, they invade Yugoslavia in response to a pro-Allied coup that removes the Yugoslav government for, that was increasingly aligning with the Axis powers. Um, they, they overthrow them for the main reason is because of their, their, um, you know, they couldn't lose access to their oil fields in, in Romania. And, uh, in many ways, the many ways, the Balkans was a, um, really important piece for the Germans for their invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, but during World War II, after the, 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 the war breaks out, um, you know, obviously there's a horrible civil war that breaks out between all the various ethnic groups. Uh, Yugoslavia has, I'm not going to name all the groups there, but you have your Croats, your Serbs, you have your ethnic Germans, you have your uh, Albanians, you have your Bosnian Muslims, you have your Macedonians, you have your Slo- uh, Slovenians. There's a bunch of different groups. And they, this breaks out into a horrible orgy. I think you used the word orgy of violence last last episode. So the the Germans, the the local Yugoslav Germans, they take the side of Hitler. So we all know what happens in World War II. The Germans lose. So what happens to these Germans? for taking the side of the Third Reich. So um, on today's episode, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk more about Yugoslavia during World War II and ultimately what what is the fate of the Danube Swabians. And, um, you know, I'll, 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 pick off, I'll pick up where we left off and um, add a little bit more context into, because we did speak about the German invasion in, in, uh, of Yugoslavia uh, Germany conquers Yugoslavia in, in less than two weeks. I forget the exact thing. It's like nine days or so it takes them to conquer Belgrade. And uh, the Yugoslav army is really not a match, no match for the Third Reich. It's, it's you know, it's not a unified state. There's there's not motivated soldiers fighting for the, the, the kingdom of Yugoslavia. But what does emerge following the German occupation are different guerrilla groups. And there are two primary guerrilla groups that are fighting the Germans, and they emerge out of Serbia. There's the Ravna Gora Chetnik movement that was led by Colonel Miholovic, who was loyal to the Yugoslav government in exile, to the, that was in exile in the UK. This was the government that that um, Hitler removed from power after the coup. They were they were in this was this this government was in power for all but a couple of days, really. Um, the coup happened in March. The invasion happened in April. So we're talking about like I don't have the dates in front of me, but like almost like a week. So that government goes in exile. So your Chetniks are loyal to the exiled king, and then you have your communist partisans, and. They were they were organized in July of 1941, so two months after the invasion in April, and they're organized after the German invasion of the Soviet Union. During Operation Barbarossa, Stalin he is, he had this um 
this uh, radio broadcast that was... Um, he had a podcast. That, <laughs> yeah, he had a podcast. He, he, there was a broadcast that was, um, you know, uh, that reached all the German-occupied territories, calling for a general communist resistance. And following that, and obviously Tito had been in contact with the Soviet Union long before that, it wasn't like this broadcast inspired him to to uh, take up arms. Um, but this is when, when Tito um, issued this uh, proclamation calling for a general uprising in Serbia. And take note, the, the, the partisans were not just Serbians. Um, the, the, you know, the, the partisans were really all the communists in, in, in Yugoslavia who were, who were sympathetic to the Soviet Union and Marxist ideology. Tito himself was not a Serb. So Tito was a Cro- was a was a Croat, Slovene, Roman Catholic who was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he spoke with a Croatian accent. And he had served in the Austro-Hungarian army during World War One, and he was um, he was captured by the Russians in 1915. Um, he he later on in 1918 after the collapse of the Tsarist regime, he joined the Red Army, and he fought in fought in his ranks throughout the Russian Civil War until 1920 and by 1937 he became head of the Yugoslav Communist Party now the partisans were very violent and essentially their strategy was to create as much bloodshed and carnage and destruction as possible Tito saw the war as an opportunity not only to fight the enemies of the Soviet Union and international communism but also to destroy the Yugoslav monarchy and to arrange a communist takeover. So this dynamic is very similar to what was actually going on in China with the struggle between the Chinese nationalists and the communists. The, the Chinese communists, they won public support by portraying themselves as vanguards against the Japanese imperial, imperial army. So like Mao, Tito would win the sympathy of the general population by, by, um, by demonstrating that the partisans had liberated the country from German occupation. Right. And, and that insurgency had overwhelming support in Serbia. It, the, the forces under Mihovic and uh, Tito were involved in that rebellion, of course, and to make things more confusing... Both groups at times would be covertly collaborating with the Germans to target one another, but eventually they they had some agreements and and you know they they created a truce. Now, because German combat troops had been redeployed on the Russian front, Serbia was occupied by kind of like a lower power garrison troops, right? I think not their A team. Uh, guerrilla groups would often sabotage communication and transport lines. And, and if they would capture German troops, they would basically just torture them to death. So the German response to this was mass killings of the Serbian civilian population. Uh, General Wilhelm List commanded the German forces in uh, the southeast of Europe uh, who were responsible for the occupation of Greece and Yugoslavia. And he issued extreme reprisals against Yugoslav civilian population as the situation was getting out of control. I have a quote from that. Um, It reads, 
Measures taken up to now to counteract this general communist insurgent movement have proven themselves to be inadequate. The Fuhrer now has ordered that se- that severest shit. The severest. Severest. Weird. Okay, once again. The Fuhrer has now ordered that the severest means are to be employed in order to break down this mo- movement in the shortest time possible. Only in this manner, which has always been applied successfully in the history of extension of power of great peoples, can quiet be restored. The following directives are to be applied here. A. Each incident of insurrection against the German Wehrmacht, regardless of individual circumstances, must be assumed to be of communist origin. B. In order to stop these intrigues at their inception, Severest measures are to be applied immediately at the first appearance in order to demonstrate the authority of the occupying power and in order to prevent further progress. One must keep in mind that a human life frequently counts for naught in the effective countries and a deterring effect can only be achieved by unusual severity. In such a case, the death penalty for 50 to 100 communists must be in general deemed appropriate as retaliation for the life of a German soldier. The manner of execution must increase the the deterrent effect. The reverse procedure, to proceed at first with relatively easy punishment and to be satisfied with the threat measures of increased severity as a deterrent, does not correspond with these principles and is not to be applied. Okay, so TLDR, (laughs) too long didn't read, there was a directive from Hitler to just basically kill 50 to 100 for every single one German soldier who died. Now, there was also Franz Böhme, who was uh, the head of the Occupied Balkans. Uh, this guy's Aust- Austrian-born. Um, Böhme, he, he harbored a lot of ill will towards the Serbian people in general uh, because of their role in the defeat of his homeland during World War One. Uh, not only did Burma see the mass uh, executions of Serbian civilians as a, I don't know, like a way to suppress the rebellion, but but also he saw it as a retribution for Austrian deaths during the Great War. So, you know, he had definitely a chip on his shoulder. And his goal was no less than just basically collective punishment of the entire Serbian civilian population. On um, September 25th and, and, and also on uh, October 10th in 1941, Burma issued, issued some orders to his units that, that were under his command that, uh, that the whole population of Serbia was to be hit severely. I can quote for him specifically. He says, If losses of German soldiers or Volkdeutsche occur, the territorial competent commanders up to the regiment commanders are to decree the shooting of arrestees according to the following quotas for each killed or murdered german soldier or volksdeutsche so men women or children 100 prisoners or hostages would be shot for each wounded german soldier or volksdeutsche 50 prisoners or hostages would be shot so again, setting up those ratios. If you hurt somebody, it's fifty is going to die. If you kill somebody, a hundred is going to die. Buma also ordered that all communists, male res, um, excuse me, all communist male residents uh, who were suspicious as such, all Jews, um, a certain number of of like nationalists and and people who are like more democratically inclined, 
uh, those residents are to be arrested as hostages by means of sudden action. So basically, they needed to capture a bunch of suspected communists, Jews, nationalists, Democrats, <laughs> and and you know just people they didn't like generally. So they anyone who shows who showed any sense of hostility towards the Third Reich, right? And they needed a bunch of uh, hostages because those that was the bargaining chip that they used, or rather the reprisal chip. Uh, in the event that one of their own would die or, or be injured. And another quote. Uh, the male population of the territories to be mopped up of bandits is to be handled according to the following points of view. Men who take part in combat are to be judged by court-martial. Men in the insurgent territories who are not encountered in battle are to be examined and, if former participation in combat can be proven of them, to be judged by court-martial. If they are only suspected in having taken part in combat, of having offered the bandits support of any sort, or of having acted against the Wehrmacht in any way, to be held in a special collecting camp, they are to serve as hostages in the event that bandits appear, or anything against the Wehrmacht is undertaken in the territory mopped up, or in their home localities, and in such cases they are to be shot." Very direct orders. Germans are, you know, the Nazis here are really good at writing down everything that they intended to do that was fucked up. Um, but it gives you a, a picture into, you know, life here uh, for these Serbians. And, and you know, potentially later when we start talking about the reprisals uh, on the other side, uh, the context under which they occurred. So these reprisals against the Serbian population were conducted based on yeah, the, the general ratio of 100 to 1. So German army carries out horrible atrocities, you know, in general. Here, here's an example we have. On uh, October 15th, Chetnik forces uh, captured a German platoon. On the very next day, uh, the commander of the 920th German regiment um, sent his 3rd battalion to free that captured platoon. And that relief force was ambushed by both Miholovich and Tito's forces. So this is one of the few you know, instances where they were actually working together. Ten German soldiers were killed and 26 were wounded. So that's that 30, 10 times uh, 100 is 1,000, and uh, 26 times 50 is uh, 1,300. So 2,300 is the quota here, <laughs> at least according to the documents. Uh, anyway, the, the Germans... Uh, obviously began their reprisals, and, and on October 19th, 300 civilians were executed in three surrounding villages. Quite shy of what their quotas were, but it's still fucked up. Um, all roads leading out of uh, Kraugivat, uh, the name of the city that I can't pronounce, uh, were blocked. Uh, all houses were searched. All the males between 16 and 60 were taken into district military headquarters for you know identification and like you know just general inspection. And uh, then to eventually to the cabins that were overlooking the town, the civil servants uh, were rounded up uh, from their offices and 300 students over 16 were taken from the high school, along with 18 teachers. Uh, The roundup continued in the afternoon with a total of 10,000 assembled. So they were able to gather 10,000 people after already killing 300 from there. 100 men were shot early on October 20th, and according to the official report by General Buma, 2,300 were executed altogether, so they eventually made their quota. Among them was Laza Pantelic, 
who was the headmaster of the first boys high school. Uh, when he saw 35 of his students being led away, he asked the German soldier, and I quote, where are they being taken? To be shot, answered the soldier. I'm their headmaster. Let them go and take me instead. That's impossible, replied the German soldier. My place is not here. It's with the boys. So he joined the students. Uh, you know, he, he offered himself up in that respect, and they embraced him, and, you know, they, they all got shot together. Um, students from, from that high school were reported to have said, we are Serbian children, shoot, which is pretty morbid. Um, now, throughout the next couple of days, German firing squads executed these Serbian, Serbian civili civilians from this uh, particular town, and, and it was said that some German troopers were actually traumatized by the mass killing. So they killed so many people that they actually felt something about it. And, you know, broken down from that mental and emotional strain of mass murder, you know, this, you can only imagine what they're, what they're going through. It's hard to like sympathize for the killers, but that's how, that's how, you know, it's really fucked up when even they're having reservations about this. Now the bodies were buried in, in shallow graves, which allowed dogs to dig up the bodies and, and eat the remains. And the graves were later marked by Serbian Orthodox crosses, which were later removed by the war, um, by the communist regime, um, Nevertheless, though, the German command officer in, in, in that city announced on October 21st that for every German soldier, 100 residents have been executed, and for every wounded German soldier, 50 residents have been executed. And before all others, communists, bandits, and their assistants were targeted, all totaling 2,300. So, on October 29th, Felix Benzler sent this report to his ministry. In the past week, there have been executions of a large number of Serbs, not only in, in Kraljevo, but also in Kraljevac, as reprisals for killing members of the Wehrmacht in proportion to of 100 Serbs for one German. In Kraljevo, 1,700 males were executed. In Kraljevac, 2,300. Okay, Kraljevac, the, the one with the 2,300 was obviously not alone in, in these types of tragedies. There were many others uh, that were basically raised, like the town of Rudnik. Um, in, um, in another town, um, it, it was systematically destroyed with incendiary bombs by the German soldiers. And, and in that case, only 72 houses out of the 464 that were originally there were left standing. So yeah, total just slash and burn. In Kraljevo, though, uh, railway and aircraft factories workers were executed and, and the Germans reportedly shot one member of each family in the town. So can you imagine everyone in your town had at least one family member shot to death? It's just, it's just a stunning statistic. Um, in, in the villages of, of, Jesus, these names are so difficult, Mekovac, uh, Grosnica, and Milatovac, 427 civilians were executed in Dragonac and Lozinica, 2,950 hostages were killed, and in Kraljevo, 1,736. So these were all the, the reprisal numbers for the guerrilla activities that were near those cities. And in a telegram to the uh, plenipotentiary of the um, German foreign ministry from, from the military commander in Serbia, uh, this uh, telegram explained why civilians from uh, Kragujevic were chosen for execution. So it says the executions in Kragujevic 
occurred, although there had been no attacks on members of the Wehrmacht in this city for the reason that not enough hostages could be found elsewhere. So think about it. You now live in a town that did nothing, and these German Wehrmacht were coming in and killing people from your town, even though your town didn't do anything, just because there wasn't enough people from the other town that did something to kill. That's how wide this went. Um, the executions of the Serbian civilians, though, obviously keep going well into the following year. Um, in a directive on March 19, 1942, read, The more unequivocal and the harder reprisal measures are applied from the beginning, the less it will become necessary to apply them at a later date. No false sentimentalities. It is preferable that 50 suspects are liquidated than one German soldier loses life. If it is not possible to produce the people who have participated in any way in the insurrection or to seize them, reprisal managers of a general kind may be deemed advisable. For instance, the shooting to death of all male inhabitants from the nearest villages, according to a definite ratio. For instance, one German dead, 100 Serbs dead. One German wounded, 50 Serbs dead. So... All of this had a lot of effects, right, on the resistance. And, and and these specific massacres, you know, they, on the one hand, reinforced Mihailovic's conviction to basically avoid direct attacks against the German occupation forces. Um, they, they understood that the, the attacks against the German would cause massive retaliation. On the other hand, the partisans were indifferent to the civilian casualties. Their goal was a communist takeover. And Tito, when he was talking about the German reprisals, said, that's of no importance. I'm looking further ahead. The terror will unquestionably lead to armed action. Basically, he's thinking, some people are going to die. And that's just kind of like the cost of doing business. We need to make an armed resistance so that we can have a communist revolution. It's, kind of, it's kind of like the mentality of a, like a Hamas. Yeah, it's 100% that. Yeah, it's that's exactly... The thought process here. They're thinking people are going to die and there's no way around it. And we're actually, we, we may as well exploit the, the, the mass killings to our advantage. That's right. Now, communist leaders replied to criticism of their, you know, shittiness towards civilian suffering by saying that if the Serbs perished in the war, meaning if they ceased to be, that there were enough Chinese people to settle in Serbian lands, which is kind of a crazy thought. In short, they were being, they were being crass with, they were were joking. It was a joke that came from the communist party, but you know, the reason they made the joke is because of, of Mao. They're like, we can take the communist Chinese and import them here. Yeah. And then we'll have uh, communists in Serbia. (laughs) Um, really fucked up. Very crass. Anyway, to, to wrap this bit up, the partisans wanted to seize power. They weren't concerned if innocent civilians were killed. For them, the ends justified the means. So as long as the communist dictatorship was created in Serbia and in Yugoslavia, the cost of a human life was basically irrelevant. And 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 this indifference towards civilian, civilian casualties gave the partisans an important edge over Mihailovic's, you know, uh, uh, the Chetniks' uh, struggle for power post-war yeah and we 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 wanted to provide the context of this because we didn't want to seem like we were piling on to 
like the Yugoslav government or the Serbs, mm-hmm. we're both well aware of the German atrocities in Yugoslavia and, and to many different ethnic groups during World War II. So we wanted to lay out that context and also to give you an idea of the brimmering, the, 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 the brimmering hatred that Yugoslavians felt towards their German occupiers. Now, the Germans withdraw. It just to add one more thing, Yugoslavia was basically Germany's Vietnam. It was a horrible experience. They were bogged down fighting guerrillas. They didn't know who was who, so they resorted to these horrible atrocities, just killing civilians. Um, they were kind of like fighting the Viet Cong. And um, the Germans withdraw. The war effort doesn't go good, obviously. Um, the, the Germans withdraw in the fall of 1944. The triumphant socialist, they universally prescribe the Yugoslav Germans with collective guilt as a fifth column of traitors who were cooperating with the invading fascist. And the reason why, and there were many Germans, uh, German Yugoslavians who, who served in the German army, and who served in the SS. Um, the majority of Swabians actively supported the Kulturbund. And the Kulturbund is, we, we talked more about the Kulturbund in our last episode. And, um, it's like a pan-Germanic idea, right? Trying to, to, to unify German peoples all over Europe. Yeah, it was, it was an irredentist party to, mm-hmm. to some degree. Maybe it didn't start off as an irredentist party, but it certainly became one. Now, there were at least 300,000 registered members of the Kulturbund when the Axis troops arrived. At this time, there were over 500 total ethnic Germans within Yugoslavian borders, meaning that some 60% of Swabians officially endorsed Kulturbundist ideology. 93,000 Swabians served in either the army, the military police, or the SS units of Germany. Um, and this wasn't just Germany, also in Croatian, uh, Croatian units, also Hungarian uh, units, Ukrainian units. Um, so during the war, this was a total of about 20% of Swabian, of the German Yugoslav or Swabian population. But you have to remember that, the, that their service was compulsory. So when the German army marched in, the Germans and the Banat, in uh, northern Serbia, were forced to join the army, right? And whether they wanted many to of them not. were also in, in the Prince the or not. Exactly. Yeah, and many of them served in the Prince Ugar unit, in which we talked about last episode. That's that was the primary unit that the Yugoslav Germans served in. Um, the Prince Ugar movement was one of the was an extremely vicious SS unit. Now, after the socialist so after the war the socialists accused yugoslav germans in the kulturbund of a long-standing conspiracy with the third reich to orchestrate the invasion of yugoslavia and then also to subjugate the slavs under their authority um under the authority of a swabian minority and i'll quote from the site that we were using before expelledgermans.org no evidence has been located in, in hist- historiography 
to indicate any conspiratorial collusion between the Kulturbund or Swabian groups with Nazi Germany prior to the invasion. The Kulturbund continuously espoused a program of cooperation of, co- of cooperation and membership within Yugoslavia rather than any call for irredentism or independence. So too, as noted above, Yugoslavia and Germany were in close political economic partnership under the Tripartite Pact. Yugoslavia was highly dependent upon the German economy and German investors. 65% of Yugoslavia's imported products and machinery came from German, often at reduced rates. Few Swabians could have predicted that Berlin would obliterate such a positive economic and political union, which was maintained under the Tripartite Pact even until the invasion began. So too, so too, few Swabians or Yugoslav or Germans could have predicted the last-minute coup against King Alexander in March of 1941 in the anti-Pact Petar II, or the incredibly impromptu declaration of war on Belgrade by on Belgrade by Hitler in response to the monarchy's sudden uncertainty in political behavior. Even after Peter II took power, he ultimately chose to maintain ties with Germany. There were insufficient time for Yugoslav Swabians to plot a long-standing conspiracy with Hitler to destroy Yugoslavia. There was no enduring conspiracy for invasion and genocide against Yugoslavs between the Swabians and the Third Reich, as the socialists claimed after the war when they began the imprisonment of the entire German community. Yugoslavia was just as much, much home to the Swabians as the Germans that their ancestors left two centuries prior. Now, it is certain that a large number of Swabian men openly welcomed and supported the Third Reich. Most were very unlikely to reject the tremendous subsidy and support they received from Germany. They got paid money. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. But not all Germans were guilty of war crimes. The majority of Germans had nothing to do with the war crimes. However... And also. Also, based on that quote that you just read, it what's important to remember is like there wasn't this like big German, you know, Swabian conspiracy to you know destroy Yugoslavia. Just wasn't enough time for them to do that. They had no idea what the hell was going on. So many things happened so quickly that they literally could not have had this, you know, conspiracy to overthrow the government. You know, like again, just to recap those. The, the the coup against King Alexander in, in March, the anti the instatement of, of Peter II who was anti tripartite act, um, and then the random and super quick declaration of war uh, on Belgrade by Hitler. All of those things just happened like in, like overnight, basically. In, in the grand yeah. scheme of things, that happened so quickly. There's no way that there could have been like some coordinated effort by any of the Germans who were living there for centuries to you know, do something wrong against Yugoslavia. And one of the reasons Yugoslavia in the 1930s was, was aligning more with the third Reich and the Axis powers. Um, they were about to enter the tripartite. Well, no, they did enter the tripartite pact. And that's when there was a coup that was sponsored by the British to remove that, you know, the, the monarchy that was in place, uh, with, with another monarch, with another King, um, so Yugoslavia was, in fact, allied with the Third Reich, or maybe not in a military sense, but they were, you know, aligned Certainly with the Third Reich. Certainly, economically allied. Mm-hmm. 
um, so it, there was really no need for for them to um, to overthrow to, the government, to, right? Yeah, to overthrow the government, nor did they really even have the power. But but I guess that goes to the partisan arguments, like well, they didn't have the power, that's why they they sought the Third Reich. But the the whole conspiracy of them plotting with the Third Reich to overthrow the government to 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 subjugate the Slavs was was you know was, was just communist <laughs> was communist propaganda. Now, um, nevertheless, the Swabians they're collectively condemned as traitors by the Tito government. And what is what's funny? It's, it's not really funny, but what what's most likely the truth is that most of the Swabians who were guilty of war crimes probably fled to Austria or Germany, so they probably got out of there. So by October of 1944, the Third Reich was in retreat from occupied Yugoslavia, and the socialist partisans led by Tito were were victorious over the, the the German army, the Swabian and Croatian fascist and the, and the Serb Chetnik militias. The new Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia proceeded to arrest segments of the population that were accused of promoting unsocialist bourgeois ideology, supporting reactionary or pro-monarchist movements, or collaborating with Axis belligerents. While anyone with direct political association with the Kulturbund was just executed outright. And I'll quote from uh, expelgermans.org again. It is difficult to determine the total number of German civilians who are are subjected to the Yugoslav imprisonment or relegated to the emigrant because of Yugoslav's discrimination after the war. Very few ethnic Germans were directly expelled because Allied occupied Germany and Austria denied them asylum overburdened by over 10 million other resettled German expels. Instead, the vast majority chose to, to flee in reaction to the univer- universalized discrimination that the Swabians received in early socialist Yugoslavia due to, due to their accused association with genocide and fascism. It can properly be assumed that a large proportion of those who fled before the end of the war were guilty of atrocities or direct or direct contribution to the Nazi war effort. This also implies that a vast percentage of those who stayed home in Yugoslavia believed they would not be punished because they were not guilty of Nazi war crimes. There were at least 500 ethnic Germans in all of Yugoslavia prior to the Axis invasion of 1941, with some statistics citing as many as 541,000. At about... 4.21% of the total population of Yugoslavia. There were over 900, there were over 98,990 Swabians in Yugoslavia, Croatia at 2.9%. The Banat and Vojvodina region formed as an autonomous region of Northern Serbia had over 328,000 Germans. Large numbers of Germans fled Yugoslavia at the end of the war, either out of a desire to immigrate to Germany or escape the inevitable Yugoslav retaliation for Germany's war crimes. This further ca- ca- this further complicates calculating the exact number of ethnic Germans who were affected by Yugoslav's collective imprisonment policy after the war. The SS in the SS division of Prince Eugen 
unsuccessfully organized evacuation contingencies after this war with a desire to relocate the Swabians to the Third Reich. I'm just scrolling down because I ran out of pages. As many as 70,000 Swabians are estimated to have fled the the Banat when the Red Army arrived in late 1944. As many as 16.8% of the Germans in Yugoslavia may have died during the war. One estimate projects that 10% of the highly Nazified Banat fled before the end of the war and 20,000 fled to the Croatian Nazis to, to Austria. Official statistics estimate that there were at least 200,000 Germans in Yugoslavia after, war, after, after the war, a reduction of over half the population due to fleeing, retaliatory killings by Yugoslavia and expulsions. The total number of Germans affected by Yugoslav's imprisonment and forced labor programs therefore encompass as minimum, a minimum of 200,000 persons. The vast decrease in the ethnic German population through immigration and fleeing makes it difficult to calculate how many died in Yugoslav camps. So too, it has been argued that as many as 70,000 ethnic Germans and Hungarians concealed their ethnic identity on statistics by by masquerading as Serbs or Croats in order to escape the feared status of discrimination. Nearly, nearly all of these super, super, nearly all these superficially assimilated Germans would immigrate with the rest of the Swabian community. As a result, statistics may often prove deficient in fully reflecting the, the morose experience of the former German community of Yugoslavia. Sorry, that was a mouthful, but <laughs> it's insane the, that so there was half a million Germans, and essentially, you know, half of those half a million Germans fled during the war, and then the remaining two hundred thousand were brutally subjugated to the new Yugoslav government, in addition to the Red Army. When the Red Army arrives the Soviet Union inflicts its own devastation upon the Yugoslav German minority, um, you know, as an act of punishment for German atrocities against the USSR during the war. Um, there, there's a lot of sources and, and personal accounts that depict rampant murder and theft and rape and, and sexual abuse committed against the Germans and, and also the Hungarians, um, against German and Hungarian women, while you know, Soviet commanders would just look the other way. Um, and then the Red Army also compounded the Yugoslav imprisonment policy by demanding that Yugoslavia participate in the Soviet directive to deport thousands of pro-Axis minorities to the USSR for forced labor. Um, the, same, the same thing actually happened in Transylvania to the, to the Germans in Transylvania, um, the Transylvanian Saxons. The Soviets ordered the ethnic German minorities in Eastern Europe either to be expelled or deported to the labor camps in in um, in like these quarry mines to help with the Soviet Union's reconstruction effort. Now, ironically, many Germans who were deported were on the same trains that. The Croats and the Germans were using to deport Yugoslavian Jews and other victims to to um, you know camps like Auschwitz and other and other labor is, camps. That is so ironic. 
karma. And I'll, and I'll quote expelled Germans again. So at least 20, at least 20,000, 20,000, man, my reading's terrible. At least 27,000 ethnic Germans in socialist Yugoslavia were forcibly escorted by the Red Army or or the Yugoslavs and shipped to the Ukrainian SSR for compulsory labor. At least 16% of their at least 16% of them died as a result of exhaustion, f- freezing, malnutrition and disease. Other sources cite far higher proportions ranging as high as 10,000 deaths or about 37% of them. Um, a small number of Swabians, especially those in the, the, the border regions who were accused of irredentist activity were, were, were forced marched or expelled by train into, um, into the border of, uh, occupied Austria. And uh, the great majority of these expelled Germans were denied entry by allies as that they were already overwhelmed by the resettlement of, of the, you know, the 10 million ethnic Germans that were expelled from Poland and the rest of Eastern Europe. So as a result, these freight trains used to expel the Germans turned back and transferred their passengers to imprisonment camps with the remainder of the German minority that was, that was in Yugoslavia and you know, all of their property and assets were redistributed under, under communist programs. And, you know, usually by the time that these, these, uh, Germans were released from these prisons or from these labor camps, you know, they would go back to their homes and their homes would just be totally, you know, they would belong to somebody else. They would be, they had, they were compensated. Um, their citizenships were revoked, so Germans lost their citizenships. Um, you know, all all men who were physically able to work were separated from their families, and they were sent to separate camps for compulsory labor. Um, you know, children and and um, the sick and women were shipped to separate camps and um, were forced not to work, but were not able to, to leave just due to, um, you know, they were just, they were just hostages essentially. And they were provided, you know, limited food and rations and medicine. And then when these kids, if they were boys, once they got old enough, you know, if they were like 15, once they turned of age, then the male's children would, would be sent to internment camps. Um, or they would be sent out of their internment camp and into a labor camp if they were physically able. So there was a, according to historian Michael Portman in total, there were over 40 camps that held some 200,000 German civilians until 1948, which was almost, I mean, it was almost the entire ethnic group in Yugoslavia, like the entire German population. Was it was almost every, it was almost every single German who remained in Yugoslavia who didn't flee was put into a camp. And then the fortifications that were used for these camps were often camps that were used as concentration. They were, they were concentration camps for Jews and uh, other victims of Germany during the war. And, and, you know, also from the Croats. Last episode, we talked a lot about the Croats and uh, a lot of their... Uh, war crimes and atrocities that they committed. They, they 
were collaborating with with the Third Reich. Uh, but I, I think you get the point. The conditions were really bad at these camps. Um, diseases were rampant. There was mal mal malnutrition. Um, you know, there was virtually no food. People starved to death. They were overcrowded. They were unsanitary. Um, you know, they were filled with, the quarters were filled with lice. Um, you know, little kids would try to escape through barbed wire and they would beg for food on the streets. There was, um, you know, I read this one account where these, these children would, there was like this system for, for German children where they would place a white pebble on the door of a, of a citizen who was of a Yugoslav citizen who would be friendly to escape German prisoners and then a black pebble in front of a, of a home where they were not friendly if they were, if they were, you know, if they would either beat them or hand them off to the, you know, the Yugoslav or Soviet authorities. And then there's these stories of these mass graves, um, which are just quite striking. So upon death, German prisoners were just simply discarded to a local cemetery um, or a forest or landfill. And, um, you know, these were, these um, graves were just given kind of anonymous headstones without any type of ceremony or anything like that. And the survivors who returned to the former Yugoslavia when they were looking for their relatives who died, they just couldn't locate them. And there were mass graves that would held up to 10,000 dead bodies. So when rivers flooded from the rain season, corpses would unearth from these mass graves and then they would fall, you know, they would go into nearby, uh, like river streams. So you'd see these bodies of just like Germans who are from these mass graves who were dead falling, going up the river. And then you'd see like limbs and, and, um, just like horrible, brutal, just very brutal stuff. Very brutal stuff. Indeed. Um, it's hard to read all this type of stuff on a regular basis. But I wanted to talk about some of the testimonies that were that were given because a lot of them are just um, they're quite striking. I don't know if you want to take the first one from Rose Mullerask. I think Mularchik. I pronounced that name right. Muller, oh, not even Muller check. Mullerchick. Yeah, this is Rose from Hoyfield. Um, so Rose reported, on October 20th at midnight, we were taken from our beds by Serbian partisans. There were 82 men and 22 women. We were imprisoned in the community center overnight. The next day, we were forced to walk with St. Hubert. The men in the group were beaten along the way. The night of the same day, we left St. Hubert for Kikinda. We were imprisoned there in the courthouse, and all of the women were placed in one small cell. On the 22nd of October, we were led to Milkal. All night long, we were threatened and abused by two Russians. 
For five days, we received hardly any food. On November 2nd, the partisans brought in another group of men and women, about 100 in all, from our village in Hoyfeld. On November 3rd, I was an eyewitness to the first slaughter of a large group of men. In the past, individuals had been killed individually. The group of 22 men was brutally murdered, and two of them were from our neighboring village of Mastort. The men were first stripped naked, forced to lie down on their hands, and were tied behind their backs. Then, all of them were thrashed with oxhide whips. After this torture, they cut pieces of their flesh from their backs. Others had their noses, tongues, ears, and male parts cut off. Their eyes were poked out, and all throughout this they were whipped and thrashed at the same time. They were also hit with pipes. At this time, I was, another, I was with another prisoner in the ground floor cell of the milk house, and I could witness all of this. The prisoners screamed and writhed in pain. This lasted for about an hour. The screaming died down until there was only silence. The next day, when we crossed the courtyard, it was bathed in blood and tongues and ears, and male body parts lay everywhere. The following day, all of the married and single young women were forced to do labor. At the train station, we cleaned the bricks and loaded heavy stones. On November 10th, partisans and Russians brought a transport of 280 prisoners of war. All of them were German, except for six Italians and two Hungarians. Those soldiers could no longer walk. They were in rags and many were ill. I heard one of the Russian guards who had accompanied the prisoners tell one of the partisans that the prisoners had no food or water for six days. If anyone bent to drink water in a puddle... He was immediately shot on the spot. In Kinkinda, they did not receive any food or water, but were packed into the cellar. The prisoners were left for three days with no food or water and were abused and mistreated in all kinds of ways I do not want to relate. Then they were taken out of the cellar and led away. Most of them were unable to walk, and like animal carcasses, they were tossed on wagons and driven away. The column set out in the direction of Shindanger, and from there we heard the shooting. Later we learned that they had all been shot at Shindanger and were buried there in a mass grave. I, along with the other women and young girls, were given the task of house cleaning, and we were somewhat freer than the others, and I always tried to locate any of the Hoyerfeld prisoners who might be there and did find some of my relatives and bring them water. But one, one could only do very little to ease their pain. Through the constant mistreatment, they became apathetic and depressed, and most had been beaten beyond recognition. One man went around on all fours and bellowed like a dog. About eight days after the prisoners of war were shot, it was on a Friday, they began to murder Swabian men. The partisans announced that all those men who were sick were to report to the so-called camp, quote, hospital, and to be looked after. After the sick men reported in, they had to stand behind the milk hall in the courtyard forced to strip from their clothes and were slaughtered on the spot. We could hear the screams of the victims inside the milk hall where we were working. The women received some food, but the men got nothing. Often, men were forced to kneel together in threes and were shot in the nape of the neck and fell in a pile. A Swabian woman, who was from Morkrin, was married to a Russian but still imprisoned with us. One time she was able to swipe a potato, and a partisan saw her and thrashed her, and all of the rest of us had to watch. The woman was then placed in the cellar with the men. She was bound together with several men, and they were forced to lie on the floor. The partisans stomped all over them. 
Then each person had their in their hands uh, and tied. Excuse me. Then each person had their hands tied to their feet, and they had to rise and sit down in exercise fashion. Most of them just lay there. They simply could not go on. Later, all of them were taken away, including the woman in the direction of the Schindinger, and then, again, we heard the shooting. On Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, there was always large numbers of men and women who were slaughtered. When one passed through the courtyard, there was nothing but blood, eyes, tears, tongues, noses, etc. It was horrible. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday were used to refill the camp with prisoners, people who were driven to Kikinda from the surrounding countryside. On Fridays, the slaughtering began again. Later, I could not see the actions, but I could hear them, the screams of the victims and the mirth and frivolity of the partisans who thought it was all in good fun. Later, additional women were brought to the milk hall from Kikinda and neighboring villagers. Civilians were not allowed to enter the milk hall, and any who dared approach the barbed wire fence were shot. Until the end of November, I worked in the partisans' kitchen, and then along with 19 other women, uh, we were sent to work in the city. Six of us, including myself, were taken to work in a store. We had to sort clothes. The other women had to go washing clothes, and most of them had belonged to the murdered Swabian men. Four days later, we had to go to the store again, and we were no longer allowed back in the camp at night, and so we slept in workplace. One night, an automobile came and brought clothing. The clothes were bloodied, and there were bullet holes in all of them. The cassock of a priest was among them. In the evening, we had to pile up the clothes in one of the rooms, and then we could see that the rest of the rooms were piled ceiling high in clothes. Next day, we had to take the clothes out again to the cellar for sorting. We also found the clothing of acquaintances from our villages who had disappeared and whom there was no trace. I found the clothing of our schoolmaster. His clothes were pierced like a sieve and bloody, a sign that he had been whipped and tortured. The next day, we had to wash and iron the clothes, and some of the women found items belonging to their husbands and relatives. In the Camp Kikinda, there was a young girl from Charleville. She was assigned to work in the office and had to record the names of all the men brought to the camp who were murdered or who had died otherwise. Eventually, she was sent into the camp because she did not want to marry one of the Serbian partisans. He denounced her, and so she was to be shot. She had to write her own death sentence. She was imprisoned in the cellar, and the door was nailed shut. That was always the case for those who had been sentenced to death. Because all she had seen and heard lost her nerve, and she became hysterical. The political commissar of Kikinda, of whom the girl was quite fond of, spoke against the action by the other partisan, and the girl was released from solitary confinement. She was then deported to slave labor in Russia with many others. On December 26th, we convinced the partisans to let us go home and get some more clothes for the winter. On the 27th of December at 3 a.m., we were loaded on cattle cars and sent to Russia to forced labor. For many of us, it was a release from an intolerable situation. The largest extermination camp in the region was in the city of Kikinda, located at the east end of the community, centered in the buildings associated with the Milk Hall. Countless number of Swabians, both men and women, perished or were killed there. The first to be driven to the camp by the partisans were the Swabian men, women and children of Kikinda, who were thrown out of their homes. They took everything from them, while others took up residence in their homes and shared their possessions with one another. The Swabians were killed one after the other at the camp. 
Whenever they were in the mood, the partisans would select 100 Swabians and take them out of the camp and kill them. Very often, the partisans tortured and abused their selected victims, then beat them to death or used knives and butchered them like pigs or shot large groups of them. The first mass shooting took place here on October 8, 1944, when 28 were killed that day. Shootings followed day after day. The first to be liquidated were the leading Swabians in the region. The parish priest, Michael Rotten of Kikinda, was among them. He had been shot in the early days of partisan rule. Fuck, that was hard to read, man. Yeah. And there's um there's a lot of um there's a lot of testimonies like this. I'll read a I'll read another one. It's from a Dr. Wilhelm Nooner, who had once been a member of Parliament in Belgrade. And his report is these communist partisans carried out mass shootings from the very first day of their military dictatorship and ruled throughout the throughout the whole country. In the capital city of Grosbecherek, um, yeah, forgive me, Grosbecherek, in which 12,000 Danube Swabians lived, the western sector of the city was cut off from the rest of the city, and this is and this is where the vast majority of the Swabian inhabitants who were mostly farmers lived. They broke out, they broke into every home and liquidated all the men they could find. Only a small portion of the men were left unmolested. I myself was led away to be executed, but only a fortunate set of circumstances I was able to get away. But my father-in-law and five other relatives, all of whom were farmers, were taken and shot with countless others. In the whole of the Banat, during these first days of partisan rule, the total number of Danube Swabian civilian victims who were killed in mass shootings and liquidations numbered close to 10,000 persons, including both men and women. And there's another one I have um, from Hans Diewold from Betschtrek. On October 10th, the so-called German quarter of the city was blockaded by armed partisans where the majority of the Swabians lived. The partisans went through the German quarter with a fine-tooth comb and dragged, dragged of all of the Swabian men from their homes. They were bound to one another in groups under heavy guard and led to the former Hanved, Hungarian National Army barracks. Other partisan units began to arrest Hungarian and Swabian women as well and brought them to the barracks. The women and the Hungarians were later released after several hours of imprisonment. Some 250 Swabian men were shot that day, including youngsters from 13 to 17 years of age. On October 12th, the German quarter was once again blockaded. Only this time, only this time the partisans arrived at 5 a.m. because during the first blockade at 8 a.m. on the 10th, many of the men were not at home but had been in the city on various errands or were out working in the fields or had gone to nearby village for some purpose. During the second blockade, they captured almost all the Swabian men, including myself. All of us were taken into the so-called concentration camp, a former jail, which had originally been, been a mill and were locked up in there. In the following days, newly arrested Swabian men, Swabian men arrived each day at the camp. The men were caught in groups had been taken off the streets or taken from their homes. Day after day, Swabian, Swabians were delivered to the camp. By November, all the Swabian men were in the camp. The women of the city, especially Danube Swabians, were victims of rape and sexual violation by Russian troops. 
The number of rape victims increased daily. The Serbs sent the Russian soldiers to swabbing houses where they were women. A friend of mine, 16-year-old Otto Ter Terleon, told me that he was forced to watch while his mother was being raped repeatedly while, while one soldier held a loaded gun aimed at him. On October 12th, the Swabians from the surrounding vicinity were brought to the camp in Beshik from Rudiskan, Perlis, Sarshas, Modash, and Stefanshfeld. At the end of the week on Friday or Saturday, the mass shooting began. The first mass shooting, mass shooting took place on October 10th. At the time, 250 men were shot. The second shooting took place to take place on October 20th, and about 200 persons were shot at the time. The third shooting took place on October 23rd with 30 victims, and the fourth on October 18th involving 152 persons. Before the shooting took place on October 23rd, it was announced that all lawyers and professors were to report. Because only few did, the partisans threatened to shoot every 10th man. As a result, 23 men reported, including merchants and officials that also included 13 to 17-year-old high school students. On October 19th at 7 a.m., several of my friends and I were taken to the execution place in the forest. We were ordered to dig a mass grave. As we did our work, we were all convinced that we would be shot, but, it, but as it turned out, it was meant for the 200, the 200 who were executed on October 20th. In the camp, we were awakened at 2 a.m. or 2.30 in the morning. We had to perform free sports. We were driven on foot through the camp, and every time we passed a partisan sentry, we were beaten or thrashed, but that was also true while we ate or worked as well. We worked on a bridge construction and, erat and erecting silos. We also had to load foodstuffs and provisions to be sent to the Russian troops. The partisans who were our guards were 17 to 20 years of age. These, these were the ones who carried out the mass shootings. There were also women partisans, often teenage girls, who participated in the execution squads. Italian prisoners were often called upon to bury, their vic bury the victims of the shootings. An Italian told me that often people who were badly wounded were thrown into mass graves. He often heard their groans as he had to throw earth upon them and bury them alive. Each day in the camp, we were fed twice. In the morning, there was a clear soup and an evening pea soup. We received... Man, I don't even feel like reading this anymore. We received a small piece of bread in the morning and the evening. In November 1944, all the Swabians in the Banat were confined in camps. There were forced labor camps in Laserfeld, Katherinfeld, Keek, and Urstan. Before the entry of the Russian troops... Besterich had approximately 15,000 Danube Swabian inhabitants, but some 8,000 of them had fled with the retreating German army. I was in the camp to the end of February or the beginning of March 1945. Then I was sent to the camp hospital to work. It was much better for me there. I had better rations, but I had to work under constant guard. At the end of May, I was back in the camp, and from there I went to work with at the silos. While working there, I escaped. It was September 7th, 1945. I first fled over the border into Romania. I worked I worked for some farmers. On December 27th, I returned to Bestruck way of by the way of Jonesfield or Onderbaga. I I hid at I hid out at my uncle who was a Serb. 
At the end of November 1944, there were 49 sick inmates at Besterich Camp who were promised their way. They were promised they were going to rehabilitation, but were taken to Us Ernstofsen instead. They were marched off early in the morning under heavy guard and remained under guard on their arrival in, Urs- in Ursenton. The commander of the camp there was a sir from St. Georgian. He recognized that the young 19-year-old's George Sal from St. George, and on, on the order of the commander, young Sal was tied to a stake in the dung pile that was set on fire, and Sal was burned to death. The remaining 48 others from Bastrek were beaten with clubs, whips, pipes, stabbed with knives, and butchered by the partisans. Later, one could see the result of their work, of their work along the street. Brains were splattered on the walls, and streams of blood filled the streets. A young girl from Ernst, Ernstussen witnessed this and told me about it. Her family name was Kramer. I had met her in Jonasfield in Romania. All right. I don't think I can read any more of these. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think we get the point. I think we, we get the point things. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the old cliche lesson is violence begets violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I guess where we where we are is, you know, calculating the total number of Swabians who died or starved in Yugoslav camps is hard. The official West German government estimates from 1958 claim that 523,000 were expelled and 135,000 died. Which isn't really possible because two hundred thousand had already had already um, had fled. So that number is an over an exagger is is a over exaggeration. Yeah. Um, well researched sources estimate that at least forty six thousand German prisoners from from Serbian Vojvodina alone died between nineteen forty four and nineteen forty eight, and um, over the next several decades, what remained of the Swabian community after. Uh, after two centuries of settlement, almost entirely disappeared through either forced or or voluntary immigration or or just through through death. So Yugoslavia altogether fell from having five hundred thousand ethnic Germans before the war before the war to two hundred thousand immediately after war. And then by 1950, there was only 82,000 Germans left. And by 1971, Swabians were not even listed as a ethnic group on the census bureau. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about this because without getting into specifics about some of the contemporary things, I'm sure you guys can fill in the blanks on your own and kind of think through this yourselves. We started off the episode kind of talking about how, how the, how fucked up the Nazis were, right? Specifically in, in, in Yugoslavia and the dreadful things that they were doing, like, you know, the hundred to one ratio for, you know, people dying and, and the, the, just the mass killings of a bunch of Yugoslavian people that had that were innocent. 
the 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 dynamic shift is is like the pendulum shifted swung the total opposite direction as soon as the 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 germans pull out and you know these these partisans take over in yugoslavia start doing the same thing and and it's it's kind of hard it's it's impossible to justify right and it's it's hard to read it's hard to think about but you really got to think about like where's the line here you know like at what point do you break the cycle of violence when and 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 how much proportional you know uh uh uh, violence. When is that? When is proportional violence acceptable or justified? And what is proportional, right? Well, just think about it. So imagine that you're a Serb, and a bunch of German soldiers come into your village and kill your family. Right. And your village had no part in any type of like guerrilla or reprisal against against the German occupying forces. Right. I'd be pretty motivated. If I were that if like my child or or anyone in my family was killed. Indeed. You'd be pretty motivated. And when there's like societal collapses like this, you can I don't even think I'm above it. Like, I, I don't think most humans are above this. Um, you can fall into deep depravity. And um, it's a pretty awful period in human history, to say to say the least. I mean, mm-hmm. the the Germans obviously committed horrible crimes, but the communists also committed horrible crimes against humanity. Um, so there was really just no good guy or no, there was, there was no good guys in this war. No. Um, I mean, this is, no, I mean, if you look at the Soviet, this, the, the Soviet atrocities across, across like Prussia, they're fucking brutal like they're just all they're they're absolutely awful like you know there there's pictures if you look at pictures of like people in prussia people just were like committing they just commit suicide they just people people were just eating cyanide pills i'll pass Um, the german population (laughs) i'll take your word for it no i mean if there's a there's a famous picture of this mom this mother and her daughter um Mother's probably like in her forties. The daughter's probably a teenager, and they're both just like dead on a bench because they just took cyanide pills, and that was uh, that was preferable than than being raped by by the Red Army or a Soviet troop. And, and this and this Soviet troop probably lost his family. Yeah. Um, maybe, but maybe not. Right, and it's like. Yeah, to, to, or maybe to what extent maybe do, just... we, do we believe that every Russian Red Army person that perpetrated some, you know, crime against humanity was themselves a prior victim? That's the that's question number one, and I think it's kind of impossible to prove, and and also probably like impractical to assume. And then the second question is, all right, how? But how? How does how does one? How does being a victim of one crime 
make you make you justified in being the perpetrator of another. Yeah. It doesn't. Well, the Third Reich killed 10 million Russians. Right. Um, just Russians. I'm not including mm-hmm. other parts of the Soviet Union. Right. Also, Stalin killed tens of millions of Russians. <laughs> exactly. You know? you know, like, it's like... <laughs> so, there's plenty of people killing plenty of people, but, like... It, it, I get the sense that a lot of the time, you know, these things start off with like a like a reason, right? Like a context. Nothing. No. Nobody. You know, in in a vacuum, decides I'm going to go out and murder you know a hundred people for no good reason, right? Unless you're like mentally ill. And I feel like. On 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 a lot from a lot of these perspectives, a lot of these deaths were for some reason. Most of them, all of them, really unjustifiable. But I wonder how they just like spiral out of control. You know, where people just kind of go with the status quo and you know one up each other. Like I could I could envision a scenario or some some percentage of of people who committed atrocities who themselves were not victims at one point, but who are nevertheless carrying out the collective mob, you know, mentality of, of, you know, mass violence. Well, well, think about it. So when we, we started this series off by asking the question, what's, what's worse or what's more violent an ethnic or, or a ideological conflict. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the national socialist would go into villages and kill everyone for suspected communist sympathies or for being communist, you know, why they would go into a town and kill every single Jew that lived there was because to them, communism was an idea and the human mind was its vessel. So the only way to destroy communism was destroyed was by destroying the vessel that held that ideology. And the same thing applies to the Soviet Union. For them to destroy, you know, the fascist, they had to eliminate every vessel that could potentially hold you know, fascism in their brain. So that's why I think that, of course, like the ethnic, the ethnic, um, the ethnic component is, is absolutely there. But you have to remember Croats didn't, Croats committed some of the worst crimes in the entire war mm-hmm. and they weren't treated like this. Right. They weren't, they weren't treated like this. And there's always been a long, obviously there, there, there is a long, Stand, there has been a long-standing conflict between the Croats and the Serbs going all the way up to the 90s. Um, in Serbia, you know, in Yugoslavia, they made, you know, the, the Yugoslav government, the Tito government, the reasons for that were were to kind of make peace with with the Croats because they had to in order to maintain their state. You know, they wouldn't be right. able to maintain their state if they had like a runaway Croatia. Um 
but the Germans, on the other hand, it was easy to collectively condemn that ethnic group as, you know, vessels for the for the national socialist ideology, and just collectively condemn them, um, because I mean they themselves were were ethnic Germans. Many supported pan-Germanic ideology, or even the Wehrmacht themselves. Some were a part of it. Yeah, I get it. It, it, there were easy targets in that respect. But, I mean, to to just do mass killings on people that clearly not bothering anyone, you know, women, children, elderly, just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I purposely didn't add, there's, there's a lot of, um, testimonies from, from, uh, women who survived this that, you know, talk about like the sexual violence that was committed against them. I didn't want to read those. So, but that stuff was there too. Um, some of the testimonies have them and, you know, these are test at the end of the day that these are testimonies. So I don't want to act like an apologist or anything, uh, but some testimonies, of course, can be exaggerated. You know, you never, you never know. Yeah, but, but the sheer volume of them makes gives you, yeah. like, you know, don't focus so much on any individual testimony and just kind of take them all as a whole and understand how fucked up a situation it was. Yeah, I mean, there's hundreds of these testimonies. Um, I'm sure some of them are exaggerated, but there's also hundreds of them that probably are very true. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I I don't really don't have anything else to say or add. I, I mean, what? How do you? How do we end this? There was a, a, a you know a group of Germans that lived in uh, Yugoslavian areas for over two hundred years, and now there isn't. <laughs> yeah, the, the it's, end. and then Dan, you so Dan, you uh, before doing the research, because this started off as just an episode, this series was was just going to be on like the overall ethnic cleansing of of just Germans from Eastern Eastern Europe. We were actually going to concentrate on Poland and Czechoslovakia, just because the numbers are so much higher. But the fact that there's none left, like the Dan Danube Swabian as like an identity, does no longer exist anymore. Um, I mean, I'm sure it does. Someone listening to it will probably be like, I have proud Danube Swabians. Like, but no, it doesn't really exist anymore. No one really knows what a Danube Swabian is. I didn't know what a Danube Swabian was until, you know, a month and a half ago or two months ago when we started researching this. Um, yeah, it's fucked up and crazy. All right, let's end this episode. Yeah. Um, all right, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of Bro History. We hope you enjoyed this very dark subject matter. Um, hopefully, maybe following episodes won't be as dark, but you never know, given the times that we live in and the topics we like to cover. Um, if you like the show, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. It is the number one way to support our show. And you can also support our sponsors, Harry's Raver, Harry's Razor. If you want to support us um, and anything else no nope. all right peace guys <laughs>